So we've been uh, we've been waiting a long time to bring this episode to you. Welcome to the very first, the inaugural episode of Certified Forgotten. I am one half of your hosts, Matt Monagle, and I'm joined by my co-host, Matt Donato. How's it going, Matt? Doing pretty good. How you doing, Matt? I can't complain. I've uh, I've, I've watched it, rewatched uh, a movie that I'm pretty happy about, and I think we might talk about it on today's show just a little. Is that what we do here? We talk about movies that you make me watch? I, I'm pretty Sometimes, sure yeah. you made this podcast just so I would watch Sauna. Oh, yes. Absolutely. But, for the record, it's not just the two of us today. Uh, can you introduce our guest to the audience, Matt? Absolutely. Today with us, we have Miss Ashley Blackwell, who you know as the mind behind Graveyard Shift Sisters, and also the writer-producer of Horror Noir, a documentary of horror cinema and african-american culture that you need to watch immediately hey hey (laughs) nice to have you here ashley thank you for thank you for coming thank you for having me so ashley um i want to start by talking about horror noir because this has been dominating kind of a lot of horror-centric conversations this year um, can you give us some of the basics, like how you got involved and um, what you've been doing so far this year with the film? Because I know you've been traveling and it's been showing in a lot of different festivals and you keep visiting places and talking about it. Sure. I'll try to make this brief. Uh, Matt Donato's best friend, Phil Nobile Jr., approached me about uh, <laughs> wanting to make a documentary about black horror and making kind of get out kind of the um, kind of that 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 spark that like that the spark of like what came before Get Out, like what was kind of the history of Black participation in the horror genre. Um, So we shopped it around for about a year. Uh, Shudder finally gave us the green light after Jordan Peele won the Oscar. We went into um, production last summer, and then in February it premiered on Shudder. Yeah, and I know the film has made a a couple of different mid-year lists. Uh, Entertainment Weekly and some other places have named it as one of the best horror films of the year. So that's got to be pretty exciting for the team, right? Yeah, it's it was fun. Yeah, I mean, it was really crazy because that was like my first time ever like making a movie and being a part of the process um, and playing such an important integral role to it. So I'm really happy about it. And I'm happy about everyone I got to work on the documentary with and got the support of and collaboration and all that great stuff. So it was really a team effort. But um, I'm really happy that, you know, I was just given a, given the chance to do it because I had such a knowledge of the information prior how does it feel having you know basically it's a flip scenario where you used to be the one writing about these movies and you know you're the one making these mid-year lists and now you're seeing a movie you created on these mid-year lists what does that feel like uh surreal it doesn't it 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 feels really good um it took a while to kind of kind of unravel kind of my modesty about it but now i'm like yeah i I, that's my shit so i feel yeah, yeah i feel really good about it no, and I can't preach enough good things about this film as well. I got I was lucky enough to see it when it premiered in New York. Everything that everyone is saying about it is true. You need a Shutter subscription if you don't have one so you can watch Horror Noir. It's just important. And I mean, it. the documentary goes places that not a lot of other people would want to go, and they haven't yet. So the exploration itself is just worth so much. And honestly, it's just super entertaining anyway just beyond like the historical level and beyond like the classroom textbook level. It's just super fun to watch. Yeah, that was definitely the aim. Um, we, I, I was a lot more honest than I, <laughs> than I anticipated. Um, yeah, we just, as far as putting the pieces together, we wanted it to be very sobering, but also very entertaining. I know even in the editing process, which was my favorite process, like, you know, putting in those little things that I thought would make people laugh and giggle. So I'm glad that, I'm glad that that was all executed really well. Yeah, and I think this officially makes you our first filmmaker guest, too, I think. So uh, I think we should definitely all hang our head on that. <laughs> yeah, we're done. We're done on this one. <laughs> but uh, Ashley, let's let's start kind of uh, the conversation by, by talking about your history with horror. Um, you know, one of the things we're going to be asking our guests is the early parts of their love of the genre and kind of that discovery process. And what I mean by that is that I've, I've always felt that, you know, you don't become a horror fan when somebody shows you a horror film. You become a horror fan when you start to discover stuff on your own. You start to find films that, that you have a sense of ownership over. So, you know, what were some of those early movies that, that you picked out? You know, maybe stuff you found at Blockbuster that you went digging for and you were like, this is my movie. 
Um, I guess it started. So let's see. There's a couple of things that kind of started. It just, you know, just happened to be in the living room and seeing particular movies on. So like, you know, and it was like all VHS stuff or stuff that was like dubbed off of um, HBO. So Hellraiser, anything from like Hellraiser to Beetlejuice, that kind of like spectrum. And then on my own. Yeah, I was like, like, you know, getting getting to stay up late at night on the weekends, which was always a treat because I couldn't do that during during the school week. Um, So like, watching like old Charles Band stuff on, on HBO, like all the creature features and puppet stuff and like all the weird shit that you could possibly find late night on, on cable. I was watching cause I was just so fascinated by it. And then like the groundbreaking one for me was nightmare four. Cause again, I had a TV in my, in my bedroom. So I get to like find, discover all this stuff on my own. And so I just started like watching that and like waiting, like waiting like every single Friday to see like what horror movie was going to play as the Friday night movie so that was kind of how I kind of started discovering horror movies was mostly like slashers and like you know all all the kind of like big 80s stuff you can possibly think of so my question to you and this is always the fun one for me was this all uh parental allowed or was this you going you know behind (laughs) parents backs as long as it wasn't porn my mom didn't care (laughs) she was just like she's just like oh my child's kind of not like all the other black girls so as long as she's not killing people and watching pornography it's i'm i'm okay with it (laughs) that's That's a good parenting role (laughs) yeah and so when did the writing process come into it did you start jotting down notes about the movies you were watching did you have like a blog or early reviews or did writing about film come a little bit later for you of course it started in my in my brain so yeah when i was in high school i was it was because because it was so important to me when i was a kid and then growing up and getting in uh, um becoming a teenager and doing all kinds of different stuff but i but horror was kind of still like in the back of my mind and i was kind of thinking about these films and how important they were to me and um just looking at them especially through a gendered perspective before race um but it, but when i got to college when i started kind of like getting into like black studies and stuff like that and um, just trying to discovering who, who I was as a black woman in my identity. And then on top of that, it was just like taking all these different classes where like there was like serious like people with doctorate degrees who were like talking about like movies and television and like they made a career out of it. I'm like, wait a minute. I got like super excited when I was in college. I was like, wait, people can make a career out of this. And so that's when I kind of just started um, writing about horror films was re- really with my papers. And it was with like these really super square teachers who like could, could give a shit about horror. But then I started writing about it so they had to so they had to at least engage with it with my with my writing and they were just like oh she has a point with some of this stuff so that really kind of gave me the boost to do it how I'm doing it now sort of yeah and I guess playing off of that can you just give the listeners a little brief glimpse into Graveyard Shift Sisters you know when that started um, and the mission that you know that site owns because your perspective is one that not many people have and I always love when there's a film that needs your perspective and that you're out there to actually provide it because so many other sites glance over things that you catch immediately. Thank you. So briefly, uh, I discovered Dr. Robin Armies Coleman's book, Horror Noir, through a trailer for a documentary called My Final Girl, Black Women in 70s Horror Cinema. That, and it's funny because both of these women are now my friends. Um, <laughs> uh, and that was by Christina Leith Mallon. She was doing her master's thesis on it. I forget what college. I think she went to Long Island University in New York. I, I'm probably, that's probably wrong. But basically, <laughs> she's um, she lives in Brooklyn. She went to school in Brooklyn. She did her master's thesis on um, women in, Black women in 70s horror cinema. And then she made a trailer for it and dr coleman was in it and i was really excited about like kind of saying oh no there's a whole book about black people in horror what and um that was kind of like the the pinnacle of like me starting it because when i because like kind of finding that information no other horror websites podcasts no one was covering the work and like this was like stuff that like i've never seen before and i've loved horror my entire life so this was something really super new cuz i've I, there's so many books about horror so many there's so many different things about horror but no one was doing stuff like they were doing and i just kind of got angry and i was just like I, well, if no one else is going to promote these women i will and that's kind of how graveyard shift sister started it kind of just bubbled and I, it, just, it just i came from this place of just feeling invisible and i wanted to make not just me but other people other women of color visible in this space yeah and that's actually one of the things i've always really liked about your site is that you uh, you, you kind of do blend those perspectives a bit you know, you're, you're dealing with the pop culture take, but you're also incorporating a, a really strong academic bent to your writing, too. And 
you know, for, for a movie like the one we're going to talk about today, and we'll get into that in a second, but I feel like that's kind of important. You know, I, I discovered this film when I was in grad school and I was taking a national cinema class and I said, well, you know, I'm going to write about the horror genre if I can, but, you know, I don't feel like a lot of sites understand kind of how best to use the stuff that's in academic circles that, you know, historical and cultural framework that, that your site uses that kind of grounds a lot of your contemporary film criticism. And I think that because of that, you're just, you're talking about these films in a way that just isn't there for some other sites. Yeah. yeah can I just say how, how intimidated I am right now? Just talking <laughs> to both of you, because like I come from a business degree background, like I didn't take any writing classes in college. I just kind of coasted through business school and you know, I kind of stumbled into writing. So like, I am that kind of pop culture writer that like you're describing that and I totally own it and I love it and I've made that my voice. But I mean, again, when I read, you know, even reading this piece that you sent us before on the film, we're discussing sauna, you know, you're bringing in all this academic flavor and I'm like, wow, like, holy crap, like I need to step my game up. <laughs> no, I, well, Matt, what I love about your writing is that it's so, it's so quick witted and it's so sharp. It's, it's, your writing is so sharp. I love reading it because it's so engaging and it does give people like, I'm reading it and there's like a thousand references in it and it's, but it's stuff that you like, I want to dig more deeper into because there's, because there, you call back to certain films, you tie in what goes on in the movie with, with certain references and pop culture references that people could like pick up on. So I would say not to sell yourself short because you're one of the few writers out there as far as writing a review. Like I want to read it because I know it's going to be entertaining and also engaging. So just oh, your thought. Well, thank you then. Can we just, can this be the podcast? Can we just compliment each other? And just <laughs> Yeah. Apparently I need to update my guidelines because you're not supposed to come on the show and compliment Matt. If you, uh, if you feed him after midnight, he gets a little grumpy. This is true. Yeah. Well, we don't have Phil or Rob here to uh, start the instigation there. So I'm sure those episodes will have plenty of ragging on Matt Donato. Don't worry. Well, and the last question I want to ask before we start to talk about the film a bit is that discovery process because you know kind of the purpose behind certified forgotten is to find the stuff that doesn't get a lot of reviews and as sort of a side effect you know maybe doesn't take place or, or take hold of kind of cultural consciousness you know movies that people don't talk enough about so you know the type of films that, that you're writing about stuff that might be a little underseen where are those discoveries coming from like what's your pipeline for for new and underseen film oh boy um Oh, that's a good question. Because <laughs> I feel like I pretty much watch what everyone else watches. But like, yeah, I guess I kind of just started with the subgenre of black horror. And again, it started with horror noir, the book. And um, I kind of just went from there. And also just from my elders, like, you know, you know, aunties, uh, uncles, you know, uh, cousins, especially my mother's more specifically because uh, she was the one I had the closest relationship to. And we, we would talk all the time about pop culture. That was literally just our thing. Um, and so, you know, her telling me stories about Black Yellow, like she saw all the shit in the theater when it came out. So that was the, that was the reference for me for discovering films. Uh, yeah, and just kind of just doing a lot of reading. I think the thing about being an academic is just like, especially in liberal arts, it's just like, we all pretty much know, even before we graduate, we know we're probably not going to get a job doing doing something similar or something we're passionate about straight out of college. So we try to make it work <laughs> as much as possible. We know we're not going to get rich from it. So we're just like, okay, how can I use what I've learned, what I've put myself in debt for? So that's pretty much how I kind of started, just kind of just going through like all of these books and uh, also a lot of other horror documentaries that were out there prior. So I just kind of just gathered all the information from everything and started right i think because i think i started i think i read about ganja and hess before i actually saw it so just, yeah. just as an example yeah and that's a weird part of the academic world because you know yeah. you're basically you read a really good film essay and it references 40 different films you're like i gotta write this one down i gotta write that one down i gotta write that one down exactly know? yeah except my issue is i never go watch them that's the thing i have this watch list of like billions of movies i have to catch up on and it's instead of like watching them i just add to the list continually because it's like well, I guess I have to watch whatever mainstream movie is coming out because that's the only thing I can sell to outlets right now. Yeah, that I, mm, that sounds rough. <laughs> that's that's a whole other conversation. Well, and Ashley, do you do you do any of the the festival circuit too? Because I know your film has been on some festivals, so I don't know if you took that as an opportunity to catch some other stuff. Yeah, recently at Overlook, I didn't see as much as I wanted to. Like, I missed the Lodge, which I'm really bummed about. I think there's another one I missed Ooh, that. Yeah. I'm really upset about, but I did get to see in fabric. I saw knives and skin. I saw Daniel was real. So yeah, definitely. I, I 
that's I, I'm like I've seen my movie a gazillion times. I was a part of I was part of putting it together. I was in the editing room for weeks. I was like, nah, I, that's like the that's like the least. I'm like glad people were enjoying it, but I'm like, no, I want to watch these other movies. But yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, how many times can you watch horror noir? Oh, as good as it yeah. is. <laughs> well, I actually I, I have to ask the two of you then. Had had either of you seen this film beforehand? Because I I know this was my pick and. Uh, you know, when, when I realized we had, had Ashley as our guest, I was like, oh, I've got to give her like the smartest horror film that I know with like the most loaded historical context so that we can talk about this one. So I have not. No, I had not. And which did surprise me just really quickly because it's it's an IFC Midnight release, but it dates back to like 2008. Yeah. And it just kind of shows like how IFC Midnight has grown in a way because you know, you look at any of the new I've seen Midnight movies, and we're talking at least like 30 reviews, 40 reviews. They're pretty well received at this point. And if they're good or bad, people are still watching them. But it's so interesting to me to go back, you know, I mean, okay, we're going back about a decade almost. But, you know, four reviews, I think, three reviews of this movie are out there. And for IFC Midnight, it just shocked me a little bit. Yeah, and I know that we uh, we have some friends, uh, obviously Jenny comes to mind, that are... Um that are people that saw this when it played back at Fantastic Fest in 2008. And, you know, I talk to them sometimes and they, they lament the fact that this film is still pretty under scenes. When we, when you and I were talking about the idea for the podcast, this was definitely, definitely the first movie that came to mind for me. Um, but let's provide our listeners with a little bit of context on Sana, which is the obviously the, the name of today's film. So Sana is a 2008 Finnish film uh, by a director named AJ Anila. And it, it's, it kind of revisits a period in Finnish history that actually predates Finnish history. It takes place in the 16th century at the end of a war between uh, Sweden and uh, Russia. And the territory that we now know as modern Finland was actually sort of the space that was being heavily contested by both sides during the war. Uh, Sana follows two brothers specifically, Eric and Newt, who are part of a joint Swedish, Finnish, and Russian expedi- expedition to map out the, the new boundaries, uh, the new dividing lines between these countries that were formed by this peace treaty. And, you know, to make sure that neither side, Russia or Sweden, are getting the worst end of the deal. So as part of this journey, they end up in this small town, and in the small town, there's a sauna. And it, it's in the middle of the swamp, and the villagers there, I, I'd say, are very suspicious and uncertain why anyone is there. You know, they've been primarily untouched by this uh, decades-long war and they weren't even aware it was over and, and which side had won and then from there sauna kind of quickly devolves into the story about guilt um, you know and a story about brotherhood between these two characters one of whom has spent his entire life at war and the other one who's spent his entire life at peace and it quickly devolves into what i would probably describe as some really good clive barker shit it's it's an interesting film with a lot to talk about and I'm not going to poison the conversation. Uh, I want the two of you to talk about it first because, you know, my feelings on this movie are pretty well established and well known, but I, I want to hear what you all have to say. Ashley, you're the guest. I'll let you go first. Um, okay. It, this, this will be brief. I'd rather you kind of lead, but um, I think, I think what stood out for me was their relationship and I guess not the other brother, like, yeah, Eric, like his, uh, his kind of, not the the wrong word is redemption. What word am I looking for? Kind of just hit, just Martyrdom? yeah, kind of grappling with like everything that he's done, and then in and seeing that contrast of how he's hardened with his relationship with his brother, who is a little bit more, um, more more in tuned with. Yeah, I'm totally not articulate right now with this because this this I I literally <laughs> just watched it, so I'm like trying to like. It takes me a while to kind of digest certain films, especially films this heavy. Um, but basically, just simple, simply put, I think what stood out for me most was their was their relationship and Eric trying to, you know, grapple with um, his his demons and or or his perception of what he's done. I suppose. Yeah, and you know, to play off of that, number one, I want to circle back to the you know, what I said about horror noir and how I said it's entertaining and also teaches you a lesson. And I think Sauna kind of plays in that same kind of realm where it's most definitely a history lesson. We'd go back to 1595, where Matt already said it's this whole Swedish, Finnish, Russian thing, but Finland wasn't a country yet. And, you know, Matt wrote this great piece 
detailing that, that I was a little confused during the movie going like, okay, so they're Swedish, but where's Finland and blah, blah, blah. So you learn about the countries, you learn about the time and the period. And you also have, as Matt alluded to, this Clive Barker shit where demons of the past come back to haunt these main characters. And it's about grappling with these demons. And it's a very, very thick movie to get through. And as Matt and Ashley both probably know, my kind of movie is more the midnighter. My kind of movie is the gross out slasher, things of this nature. You know, when the new child's play came out, everyone's like, oh, Matt, you're going to love this movie. And for some reason I didn't. And like, that was the biggest shocker to everyone because it's like, but is that not your shit? It is my shit. But I also can, I can also get down with these like heavy thematic films that have something to say. And Mr. Monagle, I will give you credit because Sauna does it effectively well. Yeah, so maybe I should, I'm going to make my case for the film and then you guys can respond to that a little bit. Um, So first of all, if you know my taste in horror, then you know the things that really motivate me are wintry horror, grief-driven or guilt-driven horror. You know, I'm a big fan also of kind of that brotherhood of soldiers as, as sort of an idea in these movies too. And so I mean, Sana was really made in a lab to kind of hit on all of my favorite film themes. But it also goes back to what Ashley was talking about with the academic thing. When I saw this film, when I was taking a course on Russian cinema, and you know, the purpose of the Russian cinema course was not really to talk about this period of history, but it was one of those things that, that the you know, when you really dove into it, it worked in, a, in an academic setting or not. Um, but, I mean, one of the things you end up grappling when you talk about foreign and international cinema is the idea of national cinema. And, and what does it mean? What does the output of a country mean when they're about the country itself? What are the narratives that are being reinforced or, or pushed back on by films that are using nationality as a central theme? And I think one of the initially confusing things about Sana is that there was no Finland, but AJ Anil and his cast are really involved in carving out a historical identity for Finland that predates the modern country. I think that's really interesting. But as you know, I was I was reading about all this stuff about how do we define the lines between these, especially since Russia has such a history of imperialism and conquering some of its neighboring countries, you know, and I was watching this film where literally its heroes or its, its protagonists, certainly not its heroes, are actually carving out a cultural space from Russia and engaged in this act. And it was a movie that happened to hit me at the right time for all the things I was learning about and it, I was studying. It was really reinforcing these in very explicit ways. And outside of that, I think it's it's beautifully shot. It's incredibly well acted by its two leads. You know, and I'm a big fan of Clive Barker. I like movies where you becoming the monster is the theme. And I think this hits on that pretty well, too. So, you know, I'll, I'll never fault anyone for not liking a movie. All I can say is this this is the most me movie you could ever hope to see. And, and let me follow that just by saying two things. Uh, number one. These types of films sometimes tend to drag on and tend to be the, you know, hour 45 minute getting into the two hour range where it's a period horror piece and it takes its time. It's a slow burn and it drags out the inevitable, I want to say. But my the the face I made when I saw that this is only an 80 minute movie, I was like, oh, okay, like I'm into this. And I think it effectively sells the drama of the situation, the demons coming back to haunt people. And it does it so rapidly that it doesn't waste a lot of time. And I I enjoyed the fact that it didn't linger on these dramatic beats for too long and try to, you know, really blow out that running time to where it didn't need to be. And number two, I really like the fact that, like, we don't have a lot of great medieval horror. And I think this kind of fits in the realm of medieval horror in the way that we get these, you know, night looking people with swords and stuff like that. And that kind of drew me in as well. So it's a nice period piece that we don't get to see much of. And I think it's represented naturally and it's represented for a territory that, you know, we we don't or at least I don't have a lot of knowledge about. And it does it, you know, realistically. I, I agree with runtime and it it, it does definitely uh, fill kind of a, a niche and a, a historical one that a lot of people I don't think necessarily know about. So I think it's um really cool in that sense and also the idea of kind of um certain films being a part of um 
or making a point of or being a part of national identity. I, I, I dig that because like, it, for example, like I know Alexandra West, when she wrote her book about new French extremity, she, that was like the main focus about like those particular, um, that particular subgenre of films that about, it's a, it's really, it, it's about like France kind of telling on itself and where it is in that, in, it, in this particular historical period. And I kind of, and I've always kind of felt that way when I'm thinking about world cinema specifically, it seems like it, it, I feel like, I don't know, maybe this might be wrong, but it feels like I know films made in, the, in America more or less are very self-indulgent, where it, se- where it seems like films made in Canada or another European country or even Africa or South America or wherever, it feels more a part of, it It has, I don't, probably because I'm outside of it, it, feel, it, you can definitely, there's definitely always a correlation between, it, it's, it's, a, it's a part of like the national identity versus, you know, anything else. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that I really like about horror is world cinema too. Is you know, I I try and be an, an intelligent and discerning moviegoer and make sure that I have a well-rounded diet of film, but there are a, a lot of times where I'm watching films from other countries and there's an element of cultural specificity to it that I'm I'm just makes me feel a little uneven the entire time I'm watching. And I'm like, okay, am I you know, am I actually making an acute observation or do I think this because I lack the cultural background and the, and the history and it makes the whole viewing for me just a, a little uneven and i think that with world horror in particular you know everybody makes these films and i when i talked to the director one of the things that he stressed out of the gate was that sauna was meant to be a genre film first and foremost you know yes of, of course it has these smart themes but you know he said i made the this film to be entertaining and that's kind of the consistent through line for me in a lot of these really interesting horror films that come from other countries. There is this baseline. There's this comfort level that the filmmakers establish because it's a horror film, because it's giving you familiar beats and familiar concepts. You know, just the scares themselves sometimes give you something to latch onto and and connect to. And then as those other things fill out, the elements of cultural specificity, those are things you can seek out on your own. And they aren't quite as essential to understanding and unlocking the text. Yeah. And I think, well, okay. So when we, as you know, American cinema try to do world horror, it's something like the curse of La Llorona, which still gets whitewashed and you still don't <laughs> get the cultural aspects. Like you, you lose the individuality of the culture itself. Whereas when I watch a foreign film or I watch, you know, something international and in horror, I want to get a sense of the culture. And, you know, when I watch something like Train to Busan or Hagazusa, or I'm like, you know, I'm looking at my horror list of films that I love, Tigers Are Not Afraid, I get a sense of every locale in those movies. You know, Tigers Are Not Afraid are about the unfortunate circumstances and the slums and whatnot. Uh, Train to Busan is obviously very much about all these people caught on a train, and but you still get a sense of the culture and these people that, you know, are coming together in that sense. And, yeah, I, I enjoy sauna again for the reason that I get the identity of the culture 100%. And that's something I agree. American cinema is indulgent. We don't care about other countries, you know, latching on to what we're putting out there. And you just have to accept it. You just have to accept what we're making and like it or don't. Where I think as a foreign film or an international film, it has to play to American audiences in some way. So it still has to, you know, be viable in those markets but they're still not going to lose what makes them culturally identified. Yeah. In, in this context in particular, um, it just, I feel like sometimes it's really about cities or regions or neighborhoods. Like I think Spike Lee is, is referenced so much, especially in film classes and in film schools, because he has a, spe- a specific aesthetic that he gives to Brooklyn that he kind of like um, puts on film and makes it really visually like alluring and stunning in a ways, but also really t- it, it, he, he he captures the beauty and the grit of it, and so I think for like I said in this particular context for yeah American cinema yes yeah, seems seems to be very isolated because then there's always an argument that if something seems quote unquote all American it excludes others, where um, as a movie uh, like like Sauna it feels it, it it encapsulates a particular time where where thousands and or millions of people were feeling the effects of this war. Yeah, and it may be a cliche, but, you know, when a reviewer says something like, oh, the director is able to make a locale feel like a character, you know, I know that's a cliche line. I know it's one that I use frequently because it's also true. Uh, 
I was talking on another podcast and it's going to be a really random reference, but you know, Dick Moss creates these films and he uses Amsterdam as a character. He doesn't use it as just a location or a backdrop. The films themselves bring Amsterdam to life and you get this vitality of the location. And again, that it's cultural, you know, we learn something about Amsterdam and we learn something about the culture while Santa is murdering people, or there's a guy Mm -hmm. killing people in Amsterdam sewers and stuff. Like it's still silly, but if you're able to actually go to a locale and evoke the presence of where you are versus just using it as, Hey, that's a pretty building. Let's just put that in the background. Culturally representative horror is so important and it can only benefit a film. I don't know why you wouldn't want to like, you know, really max that out as I look at American films that are just kind of bland and blase. Well, let me ask the two of you um, because you know, you, you just mentioned this and I was, I was thinking about it a lot. You know, are there a lot of good horror films that that deal with post-traumatic stress and, you know, post-war syndrome? Because, you know, I think there are obviously there's stuff like Jacob's Ladder and things like that come to mind. But I think that's one of the things that Sana delves into in a really interesting way is both of these characters and, and primarily the older brother, Eric, are clearly struggling with not only the idea that 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 he has PTSD, but that the war ended you know, pretty abruptly. Nobody bothered to resolve the war for the end of the soldiers that were fighting it. Um, so are there any other examples like that, that that come to mind? Horror films? That's hard for me. I can't think of, like, I can't think of non-horror films more. Jacob's Ladder is one of the best examples uh, as far as... I mean, you can go horror? non-horror too, I think. I yeah. think either way it works. Uh, well, yeah, because I mean, some people would. Well, no, I, that's silly. That's I was about to make a silly statement about. Well, war in itself is horrific, and it can, could be argued that they're horror films. But let's not go there. But like, <laughs> I guess, um, like Miracle at Saint Anna, mm-hmm. the, like, is is an exploration of the after of, of the aftermath of horror and and the, and the trauma of it. Um, especially because of the inciting incident where a war vet um i think sees if i because i've only seen it once i've been dying to see this movie again i just haven't had time i think the inciting incident is basically he shoots a guy he knew from when he was in italy and i think he was either some kind of uh forget i forget his role but he he shoots i forget if he shoots or murders him but he definitely shoots him like in public because um of the post-traumatic stress of like what he what he encountered with this particular person while he was in italy during world war ii um I was going to say Blackenstein, but that's not the best example because it's just the character that's a war vet that he, the aftermath of the war is that he, I think he loses his limbs, but he it does, it's not a, like a movie about necessarily that. It's just a kind of a schlocky horror film. But Yeah, like I'm trying to think as well. And, you know, going back, I think there's films that involve war and horror that you know, it's not the PTSD aspect where they're home, but, you know, you get the beginnings of the horrors of war, just like you said, Ashley. It, it's a real thing. It may be cliche and whatever. Um, I'm trying to think. There's a movie Mickey Keating made, Carnage Park, and the villain of the film is played by Pat Healy, and he's a sniper. And I'm trying to remember if there's a PTSD aspect there. If there is, that's one that I would call out to. If he's just a psycho, then I'm completely wrong, and sorry for that reference. But Well, and... I build up to this question kind of because I'm curious what the two of you think about how this movie blends, you know, the horrific elements, those moments of overt supernatural horror with, you know, things that we might see more in a war film, you know, and and the idea that you felt like you left a part of yourself out there because it's, it's pretty much like you said earlier, Donato, like if you do that wrong, you know, if you don't get that balance just right, you're kind of an asshole. Yep. Like if you treat this trauma as something that, um, you know, just as a reason for things to jump out of the closet, it's fuck off basically. So how does this, how did this work for, for, for you? Yeah. I think the real element for me was, um, I forget the other brother's name. My bad. Um, it it was Newt. Newt. Yeah. How he, how he was kind of haunted about leaving the girl in the, um, I don't know if it was a shed or a cellar. My bad, but um, yeah, it was a seller. I, I feel like, yeah, I kind of feel like for me, that's kind of what it was. Is kind of that the the guilt of it because he he would hear the whispers or he would see or he would think he sees something or he would actually see something and had those images. Um, I have never served in the military. I do not have that's not my form of PTSD, but I can kind of understand. But going through what I've been through in my life, I can kind of understand like 
I literally had an episode of this just just this week where I think I'm hearing something and it feels like it's outside of my body, but it's maybe inside of my brain, but it feels really real. And like literally like waking up, like thinking I'm hearing a particular person's voice who is not on this earth anymore. And like thinking like, is that person in this room or am I just hearing it in my head? Like, so those kinds of things that I feel like um, seeing it on film and being treated very delicately. And like, yeah, I think this movie was incredibly well acted because nothing felt um, disingenuous or not even real. Even if it's, you know, I guess that's, that's a, a big part of like doing horror very successfully is kind of um, you, you are fully immersed in somebody's, um, what 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 they feel is reality but probably really isn't if that makes any sense yeah i think it's very opinion based you know it, it's like a scare like you know something scary to me isn't scary to you so in that sense it's the same thing like do i connect emotionally with somebody else's take on the same stance um i you know if that kind of is what you're saying in a way mm-hmm. yeah and yeah. uh suddenly i'm uh i'm feeling very sorry that we suggested <laughs> this this movie to you ashley i'm no, sorry uh, listen everything is uh, yeah i there's <laughs> no problem i mean i think i think what i love about horror and certain things that kind of like tug at your heartstrings in a sense is like it, it's it's cathartic for me it helps me kind of purge the negativity that i'm kind of housing and i that's why that's i think that's why i've always loved horror like you know not having the easiest life and being able to kind of let go of that negative energy through horror and like you know seeing you know having that having those cathartic experiences are, are really um therapeutic yeah, and I, I will double down on that and be there right there with you because you know, I had these growing up, I had these fears of like death and this anxiety that would just always hang over me. And I think that's also why I got into horror and I just subjected myself to it 24 7. And I'm, you know, not for a desensitization, like I didn't desensitize myself with it, but I just feel so much better about, you know, facing these things head, head on. I mean, that's what horror does. The horror makes you look at the unspeakable and just, you know, realign your mortality. And I, it, it's helped me tremendously throughout my years. Um, but I think so, Matt, to answer your question from my point of view, I really like the simple things where they don't really overplay the PTSD um, in the sense that Eric's character will just do these things. Like he's just accepted that he's a monster. He has just accepted what he's done and it absolutely eats away at him, but it's not something that stops him or he doesn't have these breakdowns he has just become so he himself is not a monster but he's become so natural with these effects and just the little things of talking to his brother and the brother's just counting all the bodies that he's you know piled up over the years and you know he knows the number right off the top of his head you know 73 74 75 it's just a tally to him these aren't human lives anymore he's he he has a line in there basically like talking about the woman that they've left behind and locked in this cellar that's what's plaguing them the whole film they don't know if this woman's dead alive um newt is very broken up about this eric not so much and he just keeps saying things like i've done infinitely worse things to way better people why the fuck should i care about this one girl and that is just so horrifying yeah yeah and i like that the film literally begins our introduction to eric as a character with him stabbing the villager, I mean, I think like 30 times in the chest and, and, you know, gloating and sharing the fact that he wishes that he could kill them again. And whether or not that's justified or, or warranted is something that the film grapples with throughout the whole thing. But I mean, it probably wasn't spoiler alert, but you know, it's such an interesting way to set this character up. That's supposed to be, you know, well, like the movie makes it clear that, that the younger brother is sort of the moral center, but the older brother is kind of the one that's become the monster. And, and then by circumstances, it, it just sort of slowly switches your relationship and, and your standing with the two of them. Yeah, because he's all he knows is his brother in the sense that he's seeing the murders over and over again. And while his brother, this has become normal, the moral compass it slowly becomes, you know, his compass starts to go off track. Basically, it starts spinning wild and watching him try to grapple with that is a very interesting relationship between the two of them. And again, I think it's played out very well. And also I'll say that, you know, to me, a sauna is a very happy thing. Like, you know, people go into a sauna to kind of relax and wind down and do all these things. So it was very interesting to learn about the sauna and the actual history of what saunas were used for back in the old days. Like that was yeah, interesting. I agree. 
Yeah, and speaking of the old days, you know, another thing that that I think Matt that you mentioned this at the top of the show is just the idea that we don't have enough really good or or medieval or historical or village horror. You know, we'll use the term village horror. You know, what does a what does this setting kind of this rural historical setting what does that add for you to a movie like Sana? Does it does it make it better? Does it make it worse? Or are we supposed to you know infer or draw lessons from it because. I'm always interested when a movie very consciously separates itself from so much of what we recognize as modern culture. You know, I think it puts us in a period in time where things were so different that it's hard for us to comprehend what's going on. And we kind of sit there going, okay, how can they be so violent? You know, how can they believe in these things and pagan rituals and stuff like that? Um, I think half of the horror in a movie like The Witch, where I would classify that as like village horror in a way, but half of the terror in that is the fact that they believe what's going on is reality. And, you know, whether what happens in the witch is reality or not, you know, the ending, I think, kind of spoils that a little bit. It's still the, you know, these blind faith beliefs in Christianity and religion and just kind of diving into things. And we have a much different perspective these days. And I think we kind of take that for granted. So putting us in a period where, that perspective does not exist and people only know what they know in their little small towns. I think that's so interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I think medieval horror, like you said, it's not service these days. We don't really have much of it. I really can only think of, you know, number one army of darkness, but that's a much different movie (laughs) than uh, sauna. I wouldn't compare those two yet. We did have a movie this year called the headhunter, which was a tremendously low budget film that looks absolutely phenomenal for what it is. And then also black death, starring Sean Bean, I can't really think of any medieval horror off the top of my head. So again, to go back and rediscover something like Sauna, it just adds another thing into the canon that makes me wish, you know, these periods would be revisited more. But I do understand there's less you can do in these time periods. I mean, you have the Black Plague. You can't really do like a slasher film in this time or stuff like that. So it does limit the variety of horror you can have. But I still think, you know, Knights in Shining Armor, that kind of stuff, I think that all plays into horror so well. So I know, I know because, because I love this movie, I'm literally pulling the conversation this way. And we're talking about Sana in very high terms, but um, talk about the film kind of in basic horror terms. You know, if you're listening to the show and you're like, yeah, yeah, that, but is there good gore or are there good special effects? Do you think this is a film that delivers on the more visceral level? Oh yeah. 100%. Um, even the opening shot of the of the river, and I just know to me it just looked like black. I'm just like, wow, this that river looks really really dark, and then the blood comes in. So I thought that was a really great visual, and just the like it looks like it looks like the girl looks like an apparition or some kind of a ghost, and then the eyes gouged out, and I think it does. I think it just and just you know generally speaking, I think it does does really great with um those effects and. The kind of and especially especially the crescendo at the end and the climax, I thought that was really cool too. So yeah, I definitely think it delivers with a with a multitude of um, visual effects that r- really read as horror. Yeah, yeah and I'm quite... here to I, I'm here to talk about those uh, those special effects too. You know, I I say we 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 spoil it. You can turn it off if if you don't want to hear it. But you know, there are a few character bits and stuff, stylistic design at the end that are. Yeah, wait, can cool I get into spoilers? Hell? Am I allowed to? Yeah, get... I, I want. It's got to happen. I demand right. it happens. All right, listeners, you have five, four, three, two. All right, I'm spoiling shit. All right, let's do it. Um, the ending, the crescendo that Ashley just mentioned, I did not see that coming at all. And we get this figure. Basically, it's a dead body that gets up and is just missing its face. Its face is gone. It is a black hole. We'll call it. And blood is just spewing out of it. And I love the blood effects in this film. It's just so thick and goopy and it gets everywhere. Oh, it's so gross. But then the figure basically, you know, attacks a child. And the film ends with this poor child assumingly getting murdered because that leads into the blood going into the water. But that effect is so great. And again, for a low budget film to see that monster arise and you look and its face is just gone and it's just ghastly figure that's basically white it's a corpse so you know it's it's blood is drained except for the blood that's pouring out of its face hole and what i also like about that um especially after like listening to like like that podcast lore the idea of like 
the woods or wooded areas, especially the witch also kind of is a, is a slight reference to this. It's kind of just like, we don't really know what's in the woods, especially in like the deeper recesses. If this, if this village is like, you know, all, was, it, it was what when, when the movie set was kind of like off the grid. And they didn't know it existed. It's just like, you don't really know what's kind of lurking within, even if it is, even if it is like a, a symbol for something or if your mind is playing tricks on you, but it, but the actual, like what lies within the woods and what could, you know, possibly uh be there and the mystery of that and the unknown is really scary as well yeah i like the fact that i love like you just said we think about the woods and we don't know what's in there and our mind plays tricks tricks on us and we think about the worst things that could possibly be there so then to see a film actually represent that to see our worst nightmares come to reality and make us go like fuck what if we are right like what if there are just some weird ass shit in the woods like the jersey devil and stuff like that I, I love Woodland Har. Woodland Har is so underrated. Yeah, and is somebody that grew up in a not a really rural part of Alaska, but I mean everything is rural in Alaska. You know, there are definitely parts of this where I'm like, oh yeah, I, I know these people. They're actually pretty decent in real life. You know, sure they're part of this religious underground cult thing that literally stole territory from the priests and went mad. But other than that, they're pretty nice folks. <laughs> well, and also you know Alaska. Y'all have the darkness that like lasts for hours, right? Like hours more than a show. How do you live in that? Oh, uh, well, actually, you you get a lot of vitamin D. Um, there's oh, a man. there's tablets and stuff that you can take, and most of my family has a has light boxes, like little UV boxes that you can set up and that you would actually put in front of you when when you're at your office desk or something because. Yeah, I mean the thing is that you know if you work a nine to five, you miss daytime for like three or four months out of the year so you you, you kind of get used to it i mean i'm, I'm sorry <laughs> to my friends that are listening to this but it you know it, it just wasn't for me and i've you know the funny thing is though that i've spent my entire life chasing down movies that recreate the experience of growing up in alaska <laughs> no i was gonna I say have you no know, idea I what that says like about 30 me. days a night and the fact that the darkness leads into that horror so well so like you're saying it, it makes you think of home in the sense that you've always woodland areas i think the pitch darkness just doubles that immensely i think you could make the best horror movies about alaska because it's always dark it's always wooded and not you don't know what happens there yeah no but we don't have any outdoor saunas though so you couldn't secretly set a film a norwegian <laughs> or swedish or finnish film in alaska it doesn't double for anywhere well <laughs> You could just go build a sauna there. Just just build a sauna and see what happens. Just see if anyone gets creeped out. Oh, yeah, that's that's true. I guess I could do that. Um, well, before we get to the last question, which is sort of tying it back to the theme, I mean, I want to open it up to the two of you because I've been asking a bunch of leading questions because I love this movie. You know, it's unquestionably one of my five favorite horror films and it scratches every itch I have within the genre. But, you know, there are probably some things that that didn't work with you or some things that were maybe lost in translation so you know matt you were saying earlier that i had to read books to understand this you know what are some stuff that you think maybe gets lost in translation for you know like a, a contemporary or maybe an american audience yeah i think the beginning where we're not the village yet we're still with the russian and the swedish slash finnish whatever you want to call them uh characters they're still brokering this deal for peace. We're not exactly 100% clear. I mean, they give us backstory, but we're, it's still not led that well. So I would say the buildup material that gets us to the village, we're kind of questioning like, okay, it's uncharted territory. I get that. They're setting borders, but but why? You know, why these guys? Why just these random people? Why is the psycho involved? So I would think a little more fleshing out in the beginning because it is such a short movie. And while that helps it, it also disservices the story in a way that we don't get the the background that we should. Yeah, that that might be why one thing I would feels say. Like, as much as I say sometimes for films, I'm like, don't go into a movie and knowing anything. I feel like you need to have some sort of context going into this one, or like, especially because you don't necessarily know what you're getting into. And yeah, this movie came out I think right after I graduated college, so um, so 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 this is a movie yet yeah that not a lot of people know about. So not you don't hear a lot of people on twitter or wherever on whatever social media platform really talk about this one in depth so this is a movie that you have to go into and kind of knowing because it it, it did kind of lose me a little bit in the beginning when i'm watching it and then it, it took a minute for me to like invest in these who these people were and their characters yeah and i mean once the female you know we'll call her a ghost in the sense that it's nuts or newts um 
mind playing tricks on him. He's seeing the woman that they left behind. Once she shows up, it just hits a different pace. It's great. You know, you're focusing more on the haunted aspects and you're you're allowed to kind of care less about the historical ramifications going on. But before that, it's a little cumbersome in the sense that we have, like you said, I needed to read books before I got into this film to actually understand what was going on. And I don't have time to even watch movies, let alone read books these days. So <laughs> it's just, that just ain't something for me. Well, actually, let's tie this back a little bit to, to Ashley, to your career too. Because, I mean, a lot of the films that you're talking about, you know, on your side are, they do require a bit of context, you know, especially with 60s and 70s horror films. Unless you have a strong understanding of kind of the sociological constraints that went into making those movies, you know, you might be like, oh, this is, this feels campier, this feels over the top, or I don't get why it's being portrayed in this way. So how much do you think an audience owes to a film to put that legwork in beforehand? Do they owe it any? Uh yeah, that's difficult because it really. I, I look. I always look at that on an individual basis. Um, it, it really depends on your interests. Like Matt, you seem like super invested. Um, you you are super invested in this film and in the context of it. Which, um, again, it that's that's a that's a that's a hole that needs to be that needs to be filled. As far as um, giving a, a movie its 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 day, I guess, in the sun and merit. So. Um, I guess for like I'm because I'm trying because I think the the film I because I I can only th- I, so I think about a recent reference for me the recent reference for me is like the Purge election year, which is I think as which I think for people who come after us is going to be a film very much of its time, um, and and I I always argue it's so pulpy and over the top because we are in this I think we are in this uh, in, in in this uh, er- era where things feel like. They, nothing feels real like with you mean, you mean you know, how everything. reality has just become the movie idiocracy yes exactly so and i feel like the purge series especially election year really it, it it takes that and kind of runs with it and so when people are seeing all this overacting and all this um all everything going on i think that it's because that's really what's going on in the world and it really um in a, in a really fascinating fascinating way to me because again it did come out before trump was elected at the same time and then there's this blonde white woman who's this who's this uh who's this candidate for presidency everything feels very kind of it it the, these these puzzle pieces are, are are fitting together so i guess as far as um people i guess i guess it, it's 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 i don't know how to answer your question correctly <laughs> but um cuz it's, it's like Yes and no, I, I guess. I'm not well, sure. Well, let me let me make this a little bit easier for you, and and then man, Matt, you can jump in after that. How much of a burden do you think there are on critics to be able to provide that context and not just provide a oh, traditional a review? That, like, not that there's anything wrong with reviews. That's but. a better question. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like as a critic, you have to do a teensy bit of legwork. Um, I some I'm sometimes tend to overdo it. Um sometimes I can go off of, off of my head. Cause I'm always, even though I don't, I don't make a lot of comments. I'm um, online about certain things that are political. I mostly don't, but I am very much paying attention. And so sometimes that kind of comes out when I'm watching certain films. Um, I know there's a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of independent filmmakers will, will email me. I'm like, can you review my film and I'll do it. And I'll see something that totally relates to what's going on in the world. And I'm actually can have that frame of reference. And then there's other things where like, there are films that like will inspire you to do the legwork where there's a, there's a, there's a theme that you're thinking. I'm like, well, is this, is, is there a kind of, is there a theoretical framework for this or, is, or a sociological or historical one? And so you just kind of, it, some, some, I think some films do spark that in you. Some films you just want to kind of talk about topically. If that makes any sense. Yes, that does make sense perfectly. And I agree with you on the like social aspects and when I watch a film and relate it to society today. I agree that I should be commenting on things as they happen today and how it happened in film. You know, life imitates art, art imitates life, all that stuff. But what I will say, and I get into arguments with people about this, um, if there's an adaptation or a sequel or a remake or whatever, I'm not going to bring up whatever the source is, you know, like if you're adapting a novel into film, I'm there to review the film. I'm there to review what you've put in front of me. And that's how I react to it. I forget what, which adaptation it was, but I wrote a review and I kept commenting how the film is just so slight and they don't get into any of the backstory of the character. And they're just worried about franchise building and blah, blah, blah. 
And one of the first comment, uh, commenters is like, oh, well, obviously you've never read the novel it's based on. And I said, no, I didn't because this is a film. And if the film was done correctly, I would know all the information you're telling me that exists in the novel and doesn't exist in the film. So again, I'm there, there to review a movie and I don't think I have to be burdened with the comparison of the film to the adapted novel or adapted source versus no, this is a film review. I'm reviewing exactly what I saw and whether that worked or not. Yeah, no, that approach works for me too, honestly. I mean, it it is a perfect example for me because I read that book. I couldn't put it down. And then I've never been satisfied with any of the adaptations, but I also can look at it. I can also look at it the word not the wrong word is objectively but like i can i can i can watch it chapter one and kind of just like you know watch it for what it is without like you know with the book in the back of my head because i've read the book and i enjoyed the book for what it was but like you know whether i enjoyed the movie or not for what it is 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 totally different and i can i can separate the two I, i definitely can yeah i think there and there's plenty of room for both of those writings i mean if i'm doing a film review like i just said that's my approach if i'm doing an op ed where i say hey, I'm now going to compare uh, it to it, the novel, then that's a completely different story. And I totally agree because then right. that's the article you're writing. And I mean, that's why I started this column over at Bloody Disgusting where I'm going to be comparing uh, remakes to the originals because, again, if I'm doing a film review, I'm not commenting on that in the film review. But I do find it so interesting, the aspect of, you know, how what makes a remake successful. So like that's why I would jump into an op-ed about that. So, Matt, what I'm hearing is you don't want my notes from the Russian film class that I took. You can burn them and just delete them forever. Yep, I don't give a shit. All right. Uh, Fair enough. Oh, okay. So, last part of the podcast. This movie is certified forgotten. We have deemed it to be forgotten by all the godly people of this earth. But should it remain that way? Ashley, Matt, do you think this movie deserves to be rediscovered? Go. Ashley, you're the guest, so I will let you do this one first again. Oh yeah, I I think it I ah uh, no what? I was say it. no I no 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 what I mean no because I'm I think out loud way too much so I think <laughs> I almost want to say it has a niche audience <laughs> I don't know if that's right it, it's it's a very particular kind of film um but it definitely should not be forgotten but I'm trying to like yeah it, yeah I don't think it's for everyone I think is the best way to put it yeah I think if. Even at 80 minutes, I think it's a slow burn film in the sense that it's a slow burn period piece. It's about some quote unquote drier material and the haunted aspects. They're not that consistent. Um, They definitely exist and there's definitely enough of them for someone like me who's engaged in the story once they pop up. But I'm definitely going to say this not should be forgotten. I'm looking right now and there's four reviews logged. Three of them are positive, one negative. But even the negative one, oh, sorry, the negative one gave it a zero out of four. So... David Nussier did not like this film at all, (laughs) but I disagree with him. You should watch this movie. You should give it a try. It's barely 80 minutes and it's very interesting and it has some really nice spooky effects. So I'm going to say, watch this one. Well, of course, everybody knows what I'm about to say about this one. Oh, you forget it, right? You're going to tell us to forget Mm -hmm. this one. Grind up the DVD, mix it with a glass of water and drink it like crystal light. That's what I have to say. This movie should be part. I of don't advocate what Matt just said. You shouldn't do that. That's that would not be proper. So yeah, there's my two cents. Just throwing it out there, um, and that is certified forgotten. And we've sort of tentatively agreed that Sana should be rediscovered. I'll just keep tweeting about it. That seems like a, a good middle ground. But uh, you know, before we say our goodbyes, uh, I want to make sure that that people have a chance to follow everybody if they aren't already. So. Ashley, what are some good places to go for, for your writing and to follow you on social media? Um, sure. Uh, GraveyardShiftSisters.com. I update it somewhat regularly now. Um, uh, sometimes I'm in Fangoria, sometimes Birth Movies Death. It's, you can just Google me and like all this stuff kind of comes up where I've written like different things about it, about just not just horror movies, but other different types of movies and things like that, but mostly horror. Um, I am I, very proud of the Graveyard Shift Sisters Tumblr page. It's like an archive of like all like black women in horror movies from like every single decade you can possibly think of in film. And um, you can find me on Twitter at Graveyard Sister where I talk about everything. I like it. Donato, how can they follow you on the socials? 
the good people listening to us can fi- follow me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. You can also find my writing on sites such as Adam Insider slash Film, Dread Central, Bloody Disgusting, sometimes in Fangoria with Ashley, sometimes on Week of This Cover. Just, just follow me on Instagram and Twitter, and I will just guide you into all my madness. Well, I have no madness. My shit's pretty sane. Um, but you can follow me on Twitter as well at Labsplice. That's L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. And yeah, basically, if it's important in my life, being an article I've written or a particularly good photo of my dog, um, odd, odds are pretty good that it'll end up on Twitter. So that's the place to be. Uh, before we say our goodbyes, any last thoughts, any shout outs for y'all? Oh, boy. Um not that I can think of. <laughs> All right. Well, we don't have to keep this part in the podcast. We can cut it out. <laughs> nope. Nope. We can we can let this one go. <laughs> All right. Well, I, fair enough. All right, Ashley, I want to say thank you. And of course, begrudgingly, Matt, thank you for a, an awesome episode of Certified Forgotten. Ashley, we'll look to have you back on sometime soon. And for the listeners, I, uh, we'll, we'll see you later. Thank you. Boop, boop, boop.